As I was thinking about Mother's Day, you know, I, several years ago when uh, we were going through, my mom, my mom was kind of a, a pack rat. She kept everything. And, and at first, as we're going through all her stuff, uh, lots of things that you realize you can't keep anymore. But one little notebook that I came across that I was so glad that I opened and looked in was a journal. And what I came to understand, I'd always known this about my mother, but I, I really understood it in a new way. How many times people uh, advocate for us, rescue us, defend us, and we aren't even aware of it. We, we don't even know all the things that people do to help us uh, throughout our life. And so this uh, little journal, I was, probably, um, I was probably about five or six years old when she kept it. And in this journal, uh, there was a blizzard and we were... Uh, we were blocked in our house, and I can read about how she uh, had to go extra to the extra mile to make sure we had food and heat during that time. Uh, I broke my leg, and how she had to take time off work and figure out how to get me to the doctor. And uh, I had strep throat, and she was a single mom, and how she had to coordinate who was going to stay with me so she could go to work. I see in here over and over again, I didn't even realize how dependent I was. Of course, we all recognize that a newborn baby is dependent on its mother. Uh, but of course, as we grow older, we are always dependent uh, on people. We may outgrow what our parents can provide for us, but that doesn't change the fact that the older we get, we still need people in our life. There are those times where we need to be rescued. We need somebody to step in and advocate. We need somebody to step in and defend us. We need, we need a savior. There are times you can think in your life, uh, maybe it was a desperate situation, where you could not have made it without somebody's help. Somebody needed to help you. And maybe you didn't know where that help was going to come from. Uh, maybe you had an idea, uh, a thought of where the help was going to come from, and then you were disappointed. Because the person that you thought would help you, the person you thought would defend you, um, didn't actually defend you like you thought they would or hoped they would. And then there are other times, maybe when you were in a desperate situation and you didn't see the help coming. It came from the least likely source, somebody that you would have never imagined, and they step into the gap and they serve in a way that, uh, that, that just was needed, so critical in that time. We could go around the room and all share stories of people like that, redeemers who have stepped in and bailed us out and rescued us at our hour of, of greatest need. Um, there's something about those people, though, that we should think about. And, and two things. One is that the person who steps in to that situation, when they are rescuing us, when they're defending us, when they're coming to our aid, they represent something bigger than themselves. They represent a need that we all have. Uh, and that we will have many times throughout the course of our life, at, through all the stages of our life, the need to, to, to be rescued, the need for somebody else. We are all dependent people no matter, how, uh, no matter how independent we think we are. We all stand in need of help. So they remind us of our own limitations. They remind us of our own humanity. But they are also limited people. They can only help so much. There's a point at which their, their ability to help uh, sort of meets its limit. And then that points us to something else. That points us to the fact that we need a Savior that goes beyond the limitations of the people that God has placed in our life. Today I would like us to look at a book in the Bible. It's a small book. It's easy to miss. It's the book of Ruth. It's one of a number of books in our Bible that really tell the story of some extraordinary women who do extraordinary things 
uh, to witness about the power of an extraordinary God. If you look in your Bibles and you go uh, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, if you get to 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Samuel, you've gone too far. Um, Some of you may remember back several months ago, we did a series from the book of Ruth, and uh, we went from Ruth chapter 1 through chapter 3, and we never made it to chapter 4. So today is the day we're going to look at Ruth chapter 4 to see this story of some extraordinary women and how the story sets up the need that these women have for a savior, for someone to rescue them. The situation is desperate. And, And we see in the story a number of times when somebody steps in and acts as the rescuer, acts as the savior. And then we get to the end of the story and we think we know who the rescuer is, who the redeemer is, who the savior is, but we're surprised. We're surprised by the end of the story. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to to Ruth, the the, the book of Ruth, and uh, we'll just take a a step back and look at the story in its whole. Uh, Ruth uh, was the daughter-in-law of a woman named Naomi. This story, while the book is called Ruth, is really about Naomi. Uh, Naomi was married and had two sons. They lived in the town of Bethlehem, which is a significant geographic location uh, for the nation of Israel and for the Christian faith today. Of course, it's the place where Jesus was born. You recognize the name of that town from the Christmas carols. Uh, But Naomi and her husband and their two boys were from Bethlehem. And uh, Bethlehem was going through a famine. This story, the book of Ruth, takes place during the book of Judges. Your Bible is not in chronological order. So while the book of Judges is going on, the story of Ruth happens sometime during the book of Judges. So there's a terrible famine that's happening in Bethlehem, and Naomi's husband's name is Killian, and Killian decides, hey, let's pack up the boys and let's leave Israel. Let's let's try to outrun the famine. Anytime in the Old Testament characters leave Israel, it's always an example of a lack of faith on their part. So Killian and and Naomi, their two sons, they leave leave the, the nation of Israel They go over to a country called Moab, and they try to make a living there in in Moab. But it's not long until until Ruth's husband, I'm sorry, his name is Elimelech, until Elimelech dies. Elimelech dies, we don't know how, leaving Naomi with just her two sons. And her two sons get married. And they marry some Moabite women because they're living in the nation of Moab. And this was a problem for uh, Naomi and for her family because there was a law that Jewish people were only to marry other Jewish people. It wasn't a racial thing. It was really about preserving the faith because the other nations worshipped other gods and they didn't want uh, their children marrying people and being led astray by worshipping other gods. So Naomi's two boys marry these two Moabite women and, uh, and then after a period of time, uh, Naomi's two sons also die. So now she's lost her husband. She is living as a refugee in a foreign country and she's lost her two sons And now she's also got these two uh, daughters-in-law who are Moabite women. So uh, Naomi has got it pretty bad. Her circumstances are pretty bad. Actually, we we hear in her own words how bad they are in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Here's what she says. She's going back into Bethlehem, and and she makes her way back home, and the crowd asks her uh, about her life. And this is what she said to them. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Notice who she's giving all the credit to for all her misfortune. 
She is, she is saying, listen, this is the Lord's hand. God has, God has done this. And, and she's right in the fact that God is certainly in control. He's not out of control of the situation and the circumstance. But she failed to recognize something that God was already doing in her life. That God was already providing people in her life who were going to be his hands in redeeming and rescuing Naomi in this very, very difficult situation. Now, in Jewish culture in this day and age, in the ancient Middle East, uh, the Jews had laws that were meant to be a social safety net. Uh, they, they wrote into the, their law something called the Leverite Marriage Law, which the Leverite marriage, marriage Law basically meant that if, if a woman's husband died and she had no children, it was the obligation of the nearest single male relative to marry that woman in order to provide for her, to protect her, and ultimately to have another child who would uh, inherit the name of the deceased man and be able to inherit all of the land that belonged to that man so that the land would stay in the appropriate family and it would provide stability for families who were in crisis. I mean, we see that in our own world. Um, Sunday talked about it earlier, families who are in crisis and societies develop ways to protect children and protect widows and orphans and, and guard them. So that's the way they did it, the Leverite marriage Law. There was also a law that basically said that land that belonged to a particular family needed to stay in that family. So the nearest relative, this person who was the nearest single relative, was uh, also to buy the property uh, so that it would provide for the family and then that the, fa- the land would stay within, uh, within that family. So you know, Naomi's land had been sold. During the famine, at some point, they had sold their property, they had sold their land. So Naomi is really in a bad way. She doesn't have a husband. She's too old to be married again and have more children. She can't work. There's no option for her. She can't rent out her land because her land has already been sold. She is in a desperate and a helpless situation. The only hope that she could possibly have is if this family member, if, if, if some family member would step in and rescue her. Now, the Jews had a name for this person. They were called a goyal, or if you translate it into English, it was a redeemer. They were literally the family redeemer. Some of you have family members like that. If you had to sit down right now and say, who's our family goyal, you would recognize there's somebody who's always the one who steps in. When there's a mess, they come in and clean it up. Uh, they, they step into the problem. They, they come in with wisdom. They come in with discernment and they're the ones who help so Naomi uh, feels like there's no hope for her there's no no help for her and she says I went away full I went away with a son with sons and a husband and I have come back um, entirely empty but she wasn't completely empty because there was an unexpected redeemer who had come with her and that was her daughter-in-law Ruth this was an unexpected redeemer see when Naomi set out to leave Moab and go back to Bethlehem, she told her two daughters-in-law, listen girls, you all go back home. Go back to your dad. You're young. You can be remarried. You can still have children. You can still have a family. I'm old. There's no hope for me. So one of the daughters-in-law said, okay, and she went back home. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, said, no way. 
I'm going with you. Actually, this is what Ruth said in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts from me. So if Naomi was going to have a chance... The only chance she had was that this foreign daughter-in-law who had come to love her mother-in-law so much that she would uh, adopt her as her own, adopt her family as her own, and most importantly, adopt Naomi's God as her own, stayed with her. And you see in Ruth this willingness to be the suffering servant, that servant who is willing to lay down everything she has in order to help her mother-in-law that she loved. But Ruth was limited. Ruth was a, she wasn't the perfect redeemer. She, she fell short. First of all, just because of the culture they lived in and the time of the time when it was, because she was a woman, she had all the same limitations that Naomi had. She also could not work. She also could not provide for her family. And even though she was younger, she was leaving her homeland, going into the nation of Israel, where nobody was going to marry this foreign woman. She was basically setting aside all her hope for a family in order to help Naomi. And her self-sacrifice would not ultimately be enough. The two women were better together, but together they still needed a redeemer. They still needed somebody to step in and rescue them. Because Every redeemer, every savior, every person who stepped into your life to help you is limited. But their presence in your life always points you to the need for a yet greater redeemer. And that's what happened here. So Ruth decides that she is going to uh, do her best to provide for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. There was another law written into the Jewish code uh, to provide for the needs of the less fortunate, and it was called the gleaning laws. And the gleaning laws worked like this. Basically, anyone who owned a field, anyone who owned any kind of a crop at all, it was illegal for them to harvest their field all the way to the edge of the field. They had to leave the edges of their field unharvested. If they had trees, they had to leave fruit on the trees. They were not to pluck everything off the tree. The reason this law existed, it, had a very, it was a very practical purpose. It, it was so that the less fortunate in the community could come and glean off the extra in the field. So Ruth, knowing this law existed, she went out into the fields in order to glean so that she and Naomi uh, could eat. But she did this at great personal risk because it wasn't safe for any woman to be unaccompanied out in public. Um, These women were viewed as uh, susceptible. Their morals were questioned. They were often taken advantage of. But what's she going to do? She doesn't have any other option. So Ruth goes out and, and just as it would happen, she ends up Uh, gleaning in the field of a very wealthy and very generous man who recognizes that this is a woman in a desperate situation and he orders his field hands to protect her, not to take advantage of her and to make sure that she gets everything she needs. And in fact, he even supplements what she has gathered and she takes it back to Naomi and they're overwhelmed with the generosity of this man. So Naomi is asking questions and Ruth describes this man. And in Ruth chapter 2 verse 20, it says this, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of ours, what's that word? Redeemers. 
This is one of the family goyles. This is the guy. How did, I mean, it was, it's only by God's hand that Ruth would have happened to go to this particular field. God is at work, and Naomi, for the first time in the story, is encouraged by that. And so what we see in this is we see the potential redeemer. And the potential redeemer's name is Boaz, and he is a close family member. He is someone who is near to them. And so Ruth and Naomi begin to develop a plan. They begin to say, hey, he has been kind, he has been generous, he is our family redeemer, he, he, he carries all the, he could, he could redeem the property, he could, he could rescue us, he could, he could save us. And so Ruth goes day after day to the field and uh, Boaz continues to help Ruth out, but Boaz, like a lot of men, doesn't pick up on the clues very quickly that, you know, that Ruth is available and she's single and ready to mingle, but he doesn't pick up on any of that. And so, so finally, Naomi and Ruth develop a plan. They come up with a scheme to say, we got to get this guy's attention. I mean, we need him to marry you so that we can, uh, we can be able to live. I mean, the, the harvest was coming in, and there would be no more gleaning after the harvest. And so they develop a plan, and the plan is kind of odd when you read it. it doesn't, a lot of commentators uh, differ on how to interpret it, but the plan goes something like this. Uh, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, listen, Ruth, it's harvest time. Uh, Boaz is going to be working in the field day and night. He's just going to go in and take some quick naps in the barn. When he is in the barn sleeping, you go into the barn and lay yourself down at his feet and cover yourself with the corner of his robe. And, and he'll get the message. He'll, he'll, he'll figure it out then. He'll finally figure it out. Now, there, there's all kinds of speculation as to what that means and, and what that meant. Was this inappropriate? Was, was this somehow a, a salacious act that was, that was I don't know. But, but I know this, that Boaz's reaction to Ruth's uh, act of desperation uh, was completely the act of a gentleman. I mean, he, he responded in a completely appropriate way, a way filled with integrity. And here's what he said to her. And so as he wakes up in the middle of the night uh, and realizes there is a woman sleeping at my feet, here's what he said. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men. Uh, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So finally, Boaz gets the picture. He says, okay, Ruth, I get the picture. I finally am catching what you're, uh, I'm picking up what you're putting down, and I am going to, uh, I'll marry you, I'll redeem you, I'll do what you're asking uh, me to do. There's a, there's, there's a little bit of a, a problem, though, that Boaz has. First of all, did you catch what he said? That his willingness was dependent on her Worthiness. Look, look what it says in, in Ruth 3.11. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Have you ever been helped by somebody who only helped you because they deemed that you were worthy of their assistance? And then have you ever asked yourself the question, would they have helped me if they didn't think I was worthy of their assistance? I mean, Boaz was being incredibly generous, but his generosity was attached to something. His generosity was attached to the fact that this woman had been proven, had been demonstrated. The whole town talked about the fact that she was a worthy woman. But there was a, another shortfall. See, he was willing to help Ruth and Naomi, but he was not able to help 
Ruth and Naomi. Look what it says next in, in Ruth 3, verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is, there is a redeemer nearer than I. See, Boaz is basically saying, Ruth, I want to help you, but there's a problem. I am a redeemer, but there's a relative, a single male relative who is closer related to Naomi than I am. So even though I'm willing to help you, Ruth, I'm not able to help you. Have you had that experience with people? People who have been willing to help you? They they have said, I would help you if I could help you. Maybe there was a health limitation on their part. Maybe there was a financial limitation on their part. Maybe there was just a circumstance. Maybe they lived far away at your time of greatest need. And while they were willing to help you, they were not necessarily able to help you. And so we have the unexpected redeemer, Ruth, somebody you're not looking for, but who God has placed in your life, who steps in in a sacrificial way and serves you. And then we have the potential redeemer, the Boazes in our life, those who are willing to help us, uh, but maybe not able to help us. And, And Boaz, as he ultimately steps into this role, he represents this great and mighty bridegroom, this image that we see in the Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament, of, of the, the, the bridegroom who steps in to rescue the bride. It's every fairy tale that you've ever read. It's Prince Charming. He, that's who he is. The problem with Boaz is that while he's willing, he's not able. And then we meet another redeemer. This is the failed redeemer. And we don't know his name. Uh, Boaz actually calls him so-and-so. So that's what we'll call him. The failed redeemer. Listen to what happens. So Boaz knows that, uh, that, that there is this closer redeemer. So he tells Ruth and Naomi, listen, ladies, I will go and advocate on your behalf. I will go to this redeemer who's closer than I am, and I will let him know the situation, and I will um, talk to him about you. So uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. Now the word friend there in Hebrew uh, literally is translated so-and-so. It's almost like saying, hey, you. I mean, it's just, we don't even know this guy's name. That's how, that's how poor an example of a redeemer he is. Hey, you, come and sit down. And so he turned aside, and he sat down, and he took 10 men. Boaz got 10 men who could serve as witnesses, elders of the city, and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So Boaz wants everybody to hear this transaction that's a about to take place. Never mind the fact that this involves the lives of these two women. It's about more than property. So he sits down and he describes the situation, uh, the death of Elimelech and the death of the two sons, and this property was sold to pay the debt, and there needs to be someone to buy the property back. And so this so-and-so redeemer says, hey, I'll do that. I'll buy the property back. I mean, I could expand my holdings anyway. Uh, What harm would it do? I'll buy the property back and the proceeds from the money, the proceeds from the farm can take care of Naomi to the end. And then uh, Boaz sprung on him what he wasn't expecting. He said, well, just know this, so-and-so, that the minute you buy the property, you also have to marry Ruth because she's childless. And somebody has to marry her in order to provide and protect her and to give her an heir, to give her a child who will carry on the family name. And listen to what the so-and-so redeemer, the failed redeemer, said in Ruth chapter 4, verse 6. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my rights of redemption yourself, for I cannot do it. Actually, I think it would be better to say that he would not do it. You see, so-and-so's shortfall was this. He was able to do it, 
but not willing to do it. Have you had those people in your life? People who you knew they were able to help you. They were able to step in. They were able to defend you. They were able to say the thing that needed to be said on your behalf. They were able to provide for you. They were able to give time to you, but they didn't do it. They failed you. And and your life was the worst because of it. They were able, but they were not willing. That's this guy. He was able to do it, but he wouldn't do it. You see, anytime we place a system uh, in place to take care of people, uh, we need to know that the system will never solve the problem of the human condition. The Jewish law was a system that said, hey, we're going to put all these things in place that will provide for widows and provide for orphans and care for them. But systems will fail when people lack integrity every time. That, that, that goes throughout our culture and throughout our society as well. We can pass all the laws that, that we want in Tallahassee, downtown in Jacksonville, in Washington, D.C., but laws and systems do not save people. They cannot rescue people. God puts people in our lives who have to step into the gap. And there are those unexpected redeemers, people we didn't see coming, that God has placed at just the right time, at just the right place. There are those potential redeemers, people who are willing to help us, but who just aren't able to help us. And then there are the failed redeemers, people in our life who are certainly able, but who are not willing to do it. So so so-and-so refuses to do it, so Boaz steps into the gap, and Boaz is willing to marry her. Listen to what it says in Ruth 4, 13 and 14. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, remember this story is about Naomi. She's the one in the desperate situation. The women of Bethlehem said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a what? Redeemer. Here it is. Who is it? I mean, it could be Ruth. Certainly Naomi's life was blessed and better because Ruth was willing to sacrifice herself. She was willing to play the role of the the suffering servant and give up her future in order to care for her mother-in-law. It could be Ruth. It could be Boaz. Boaz, that great and mighty and strong bridegroom who stepped into the gap and rescued Ruth and was willing to rescue Naomi. It could be Boaz. Who Who is this redeemer that these women are talking about? Because this is, in the book of Ruth, the ultimate redeemer. Look what it says in Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. And may his name, we know it's a hymn, may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loved you, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. In other words, hey, Naomi, this may be painful for you to hear, but, but Ruth has ended up being better to you than your two sons were and better than seven sons could have possibly been. She was great, but that's not who they're talking about here. Has given birth to him. Who are these women talking about? They're talking about a baby. They're talking about this child that was born. Now remember, how much help is a newborn baby to you? We've had four of them in our house. And they are not much help at all. Now they're precious and they're wonderful. And God made them cute so that you would keep them. That's why he made them adorable. But... 
But I wouldn't say that a child is a redeemer or a, a helper. Look what, it, look what it goes on. It says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, now listen to this, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of of David. Now, just stick with me for just a minute, because anytime you read the Bible, anytime you read especially the Old Testament, you have to think of the message of the Bible like a telescope. Have you ever played with a telescope before, and you pull it out, and you look at it, and it looks like it's one size, and then you pull it out, and there's another level, and then you pull it out, and there's another level? The Bible's like that. There are levels and layers. And, and, and while the writers of these books had no way of knowing, the Holy Spirit who's inspiring the writing of these books is all aware of what this story is actually about. Listen to what this really means. See, there's an immediate fulfillment in the, the, the women of Bethlehem saying, a redeemer has been born to you. This child would be the salvation of Naomi. The fact that this child could inherit her husband's land and provide for Naomi through the rest of her life was redemption. It was, it was something that would certainly save her in her earthly existence. But there was an intermediate fulfillment of this promise as well. Did you catch what it said? This child's name will be Boaz, who will be the father of Jesse, who will be the father of who? David. And who would David be? He would be the mighty king of Israel. He would be the one who would basically unify the nation and establish Israel as a nation. He was the redeemer of Israel. He was the one who would save the nation. But there's even more than that. There's an ultimate fulfillment in this. And this is the promise of a savior who is to come. The Messiah. See, the ultimate redeemer is the Messiah, one who had been promised to the Jewish people for years and years and years that there would come a Savior who would rescue his people and who would make them, uh, make them able to be reunited with their God. Listen to what it says in 2 Samuel. This is God speaking to King David. Listen to what he says. When your days, King David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. This is the redeemer, the ultimate redeemer who would come. And if you open to your New Testament, the very first words of the New Testament, the very first words, Matthew 1.1 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That there would be a child who would be born in Bethlehem. Who would, yes, Naomi, save you for the days that you have remaining to live on this earth. But there would be another child who would be born who would be a great and a mighty king, who would rescue the nation. But both of those were limited. There was only so much that they could do, but they're pointing to something else. They're pointing to something that, Naomi, you will never live to see, something that your children will never live to see. They're pointing the way to the ultimate redeemer, the Messiah. His name is Jesus Christ. And he has come to save his people from their sins. And while every earthly redeemer we have has limitations... Those limitations point us to the need for the one who can ultimately rescue us from the thing uh, that is most dangerous in our lives, 
and that is our separation from God. Listen, just a few things from the book of Ruth as we conclude. Your circumstances are not as hopeless as they appear. I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know what circumstances you have. It could be involving your family, your finances. It could be a health situation. But your circumstances are not as hopeless as they appear. Naomi thought that she had come back empty, but God had not forgotten about Naomi. And God was doing a mighty work in her life that millions of years later, thousands of years later, we are still talking about. We're still talking about the way God stepped into Naomi's circumstance. Your circumstances are not as hopeless as they appear. And something else, your Redeemer is not as far away as you may fear. See, when we look around for a Redeemer, here's what we do. We often first look to ourselves, don't we? We think, well, what can I do to save myself? But if you read the story of Ruth, you'll know that Ruth's self-effort, her gleaning, was never going to save them without Boaz's generosity. Her schemes and her plans were not going to rescue them entirely. You see, we can always look to ourselves, but we will always fall short. Just like you need people in life, ultimately, at the end of your life, you need a Savior. So what do we do? We look within first, and then we'll look around. But everyone around us has shortcomings as well. Your family will and probably already has disappointed you. They might be willing to help you, but just not able to help you. There might be those family members who are able to help you, but who are not willing to help you. There's no rescue for Naomi and Ruth in the arms of a man. There's no rescue for Ruth in being in the right culture or being of the right race. None of those things that we normally look to around us externally were ultimately going to be their salvation and their rescue because every human redeemer has limitations. So when we're looking for a redeemer, we look within, we look around, but ultimately what we need to do is we need to be willing to look up. Listen to what God says to us through Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 through 14. For I know the plans I have for you. Right now, where you are, that health crisis, that financial crisis, that job crisis, that crisis with your children, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Your Redeemer is closer than you think. And catch this, your suffering, like the suffering of Naomi, may be an indication that your Savior is drawing near. God delights in rescuing the weak. God God takes great delight in redeeming those who look like they're beyond any hope of redemption. When Jesus, that child who was born in Bethlehem, that ultimate redeemer, the Messiah, when, when he was talking to his disciples shortly before his crucifixion, he was beginning to tell them how bad things were about to get. Guys, things are gonna get real bad. And he wasn't sugarcoating it. There's gonna be war There's going to be destruction. Some of you guys are going to give up your lives. Some of you are going to suffer terribly. But this is what he said. But when those things begin to take place, listen, stand up. Look up here. Stand up. Lift up your heads. Because your redemption is near. Your redemption is closer than you think it is. Listen, you may be living your life looking for a savior. And you may find it in someone, some unexpected person that God puts in your life who steps in at just the right moment 
and provides for you, and you're grateful, but you recognize they have all the same limitations you have. You may see the potential of a redeemer in somebody who is willing but not able. You may even see it in the rejection of someone who is able but who's not willing. But the Savior that you need, the Savior to carry you through all eternity, is Jesus Christ. As I look back and I read uh, this journal, um, I was curious as to why it was a month-long journal. And then I realized from the opening entry and the closing entry uh, what was happening here. Uh, This journal was started um, on February 1st, 1978. And my mother's first entry is this. Today, I went to church and I learned about Jesus dying on the cross for us and being forgiven forever for all of our sins. And then the very last entry, she talks about the struggle with the weather. She talks about the struggle of being a single mom. And then she says this, thank you, Lord, for today. And I pray that you'll be with me as I'm baptized in your name tomorrow. This journal was a journal that she kept for the month between her profession of faith and the day of her baptism. You see, all that time growing up that I recognized and knew um, that she was that redeemer. She was that person who stepped in so many times for me. What I couldn't have known as a child was that she had been rescued and redeemed by another, one much stronger than her. And that's the Savior that we proclaim to you today.